to our beautiful deep community, I want to assure you the deeper is going nowhere and the same incredible content will be released every week, but now through Arise. It is going to be less trauma heavy and more inspirational, uplifting, but it will still challenge and push you to grow. For all your deeper episodes, they are still available every fortnight. You can still get your deep hit with the deeper subscription. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. And some people just go peacefully. Uh, I was not going to do that. I, mean, I was going to make a bang on the way out somehow. And then they put you into a chair and they strap you in. And then uh, they wait for the governor to possibly call and stop the execution, which very rarely happens. Welcome to The Deep. I'm Zoe Marshall. In my early 20s, a lot of traumatic things happened. And ever since then, I have had this fascination with people and their stories. This is The Deep. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I work and live, and recognise their continuing connection to land, water and community. I pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging. It sounds like something straight out of a movie. Ron was on a road trip with his mates when out of the blue he was arrested for a murder he didn't commit. Put on death row. No questions asked. It's insane. Ron never accepted this. He eventually uncovered the truth. This wasn't just a simple mistake. Here's Ron's story. Ron, welcome to The Deep. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We are going to talk about... 1974, which is a very long time ago. Can you take me back there to maybe say the day that you were caught up in something awful? I belonged to a motorcycle club in California and it was winter time. It was February and we decided we wanted to take a vacation and go to Detroit, which is where I'm from. And we're in a van because it's snowing out and everything. We don't take our motorcycles in the snow. We got to Main things that people need for a road trip. We got a loaf of bread, a jar of mustard, a pound of bologna, and five cases of beer. (laughs) Right. There's five people. So basically, before we even get through Arizona, we got a pretty good buzz going. We've been Mm -hmm. drinking quite a bit of beer. We end up in Weatherford, Oklahoma, and we got pulled over by a well, I couldn't believe all the police cars that pulled us over. It looked like central casting out of uh, the Blues Brothers or something. They surrounded us, and uh, I, I couldn't even count all the cars. They're all yelling and screaming at us. They got guns pointing at us, telling us. Some are telling us to back up. Others are telling us lay down. Others are telling us to raise their hands. And you know, I turned around and said, you guys got to get it together. What's going on here? Shut up. Lay down. Okay. So we get arrested for armed robbery. At this point, you have no idea what's going on. No, no idea at all. We thought maybe uh, maybe we were speeding or something, but then couldn't understand all these cars for a speeding ticket. Mm -hmm. So they take us to jail. They give us a court-appointed attorney who says, we'll get you off in 10 years if you guys want to confess to it right now. And we tell them, what, are you crazy? You know, get the fuck away from us. We're not going to confess to anything. We didn't do, we didn't rob. What are you talking about? What robbery? Yeah. So next thing we know, they dismissed the the case on us. They dismissed all the charges. Then you're holding us on another armed robbery. All right, what's this? So we get the same court-appointed attorney again, tells us the same thing. He's going to get us off with 10 years. (laughs) Well, (laughs) we go to court. Where you and the first thing in the court is an arraignment where you're supposed to plead guilty or not guilty. 
we pled not guilty. Judge is looking at the paperwork. He says, wait a minute. These guys are accused of robbing Clem's gas station on Highway 40. Didn't that burn down two years ago? And our court-appointed attorney says, yes, Your Honor, that's what I was getting ready to tell you. And I looked at him, I said, I thought you were going to get us off with 10 years. Now you know we didn't do it? And the judge got mad, screaming and yelling at the attorneys, and he told us, you know, not a legal way to dismiss the case, but he says, y'all get the hell out of my courtroom. Yeah, okay, no problem, we'll do that. We go back to our cell, waiting to get released, then they tell us we're wanted for a murder. Oh, my God. So here's this attorney again. He says, well, we're going to fight extradition. Well, you know, we've been in trouble before with the law of bar fighting and stupid stuff, but never anything serious like this. So we don't understand what's extradition. He says, well, we're going to stop them from taking you back to New Mexico to answer for a murder they say you did. And so, what's and so they can never get us. He's oh no, they're going to come and get you. It just keep takes them longer to come and get you. So we all basically no. Let's go back there and straighten this out. We didn't do anything. Ron, are you currently um, in remand? Are you in the jail through all this time, or are you free? No, we're in the jail. How many of you are being accused? Five. Five of you regular dudes with your bologna sandwiches are. Firstly, accused of robbing something that doesn't exist, right? Yes. And then they're saying, no, no, these five guys are now up for murder. Yes. We go back to Albuquerque. They cut, They take us in these vans. And the cops are saying, we hope you try to run. Anybody got to pee? You can get out and pee on the side of the road. We're thinking, no, they're going to shoot us. Mm-hmm. And they can't tell, come on, we'll give you a chance to run. I'll lay my gun down on the seat, on the back seat, and you guys can see, see if you can get it. And we're looking at each other. What These people are crazy. What's going crazy. on? Yes. We don't understand this until later, and I'll tell you why. Mm-hmm. So we go for arraignment. You plead guilty or not guilty. Now they give us another attorney. This guy's four months out of law school and handling a murder case for five people. I mean, this is totally, totally ridiculous to, to, to even imagine this. Murder cases are for the most experienced attorneys, the people who they really think can do a good job for you and protect your rights. Mm-hmm. No, they give us this new kid on the block. He's telling us, again, he can get us off with 50 years instead of the death penalty if we confess. Mm-hmm. Well, sorry about my language, but we told him, fuck you. And man, everything he said, we told him that. We're not going to go for that. The judge says, okay, you take our plea of not guilty. And they took us directly to death row. What? Yes. How does this happen? I'll cut to the chase. It happens when a police officer is the real murderer. (gasps) Yes. This is why they want us to try to run away and stuff so they could shoot us. This is why they put us right on death row. And we don't know what's going on. I mean, we watch TV. We figured to go to death row. You had to go through a trial and uh, got convicted. Yes. And then they put you on death row and kill you. Yes. We went right from arraignment to death row. And they said, well, that's where you're going to be. No evidence, no trial, no jury. no. N- what Nothing. state is this? New Mexico. Wow. And it's the, it's the cops that did the murder and they're trying to plant it on five 24-year-olds that have had bologna sandwiches in their backpacks. We're dirty, nasty bikers coming through their territory. They need somebody to pin it on. This cop, in his confession, he said he went to the sheriff. Now, he was what they call the Drug Enforcement Agency. He went to the sheriff, and he told the sheriff, this uh, this was a drug bus gone wrong, and I shot the guy and uh, about all this and everything. And the sheriff says, look, you get the hell out of town right now. I'm running for re-election. I cannot have a dirty cop. You mm-hmm. killed somebody, just shut your mouth, and you get the hell out of town. Now, the guy in his confession, they said he saw the sheriff put the gun in the safe. Okay. So here we are later, when we're just before we got out, we got a, a retrial in the court now for the hearing. We got a search warrant to open the sheriff's safe. 
when we opened that safe, we not only found the gun, we found the paperwork that had been sent to the crime lab. And the crime lab came back and said, yes, this is definitely the murder weapon. <sighs> when the sheriff was asked later why he did not present that, he says, oh, they lie a lot of the time anyway. I can't believe that crime lab. Funny thing about it is the crime lab works for him. They're his employees. You can manipulate all of the evidence. Yeah. But tell me, as a 24-year-old, being put on death row with your four mates, how do you even digest that kind of information? Well, because we don't accept it. Okay. So you know this is crazy. This has to be. But you also know that people have gone to death row and been killed and been wrongfully accused. You know that happens. Oh, sure. Sure. But we didn't know what happened. We figured these guys made a mistake. And we figure any time now, they're going to figure out their mistake and they're going to let us go. We didn't know that they planned this, that they rigged everything, that they framed us. We didn't know this. We thought it was an honest mistake. Ron, I know you weren't a murderer or a robber, but were you a bit of a tough guy with your, your bikey mates? Were you a bit of a brute? Did you like get in rumbles and scuffles and stuff? Or were you kind of like a clean cut all-American boy? No, we were what's called a one percenter biker gang. I was okay. stupid. I was dumb back then. Young, dumb, and crazy. And they, oh, the whole town, the whole state hated people like us. Did you do crimes? Uh, yeah, we used to bar fight. I used to steal motorcycles. Yeah, other things. Did you rape or kill anyone or do anything no. like that? Okay. No, I didn't rape or kill anybody. I didn't deal drugs either. We okay. had uh, an honor code in our club where... Uh, We weren't into that. We would not accept anybody who was into drugs. So you're on death row, but you're in denial or you're in um, disbelief, but you're there for two years. So I'm feeling like at some point you're going to start questioning if this is a real thing. Are you actually going to die? Well, we had a little hope because there was no death penalty. Death penalty in the United States was outlawed then in 1974. They had the uh, the Furman decision, which took away the, the death penalty. It wasn't until late 76 that they brought it back with the Gregg decision. So we're wondering, how can they possibly have a death row or put anybody on death row when there is no death penalty? But see, this is the good old boys network. Your constitutional rights are subject to the whim of the people who have power over you. If it was 1974 to 1976, Weren't you in there when the death penalty was reinstated? Yes. And then were you nervous? Yeah, because uh, my execution date was coming up. And they told me I'm a loudmouth, so I'm going first. Can I ask you what is the way that they kill you? Gas. In the gas chamber is what they, they, they use then. Can you talk me through, like, for someone that was going to get gassed, what that situation is? Do you get an option for your last supper? If you were nice to the guards in prison, you could get a last supper. If you weren't nice, they're not going to give you nothing. In fact, we got quite violent with some of the guards. Uh, we had a lot of battles with them. I had a lot of <laughs> bruises, scars, lost teeth and everything from those guards. Because they used to beat on us, and we wouldn't accept that. We'd fight back all the time. But the gas chamber, if you're nice to the cops, you will get something for your last meal. What would your last meal have been? Did you ever think about it? Yeah, I wanted a Sonic hamburger. Sonic is a hamburger chain, like a McDonald's or something. You wanted just a you wanted a takeaway hamburger? Cheeseburger, yeah. For your last meal? Yes. Out of all the food in the whole world, you wanted fast food? <laughs> well, what's that matter? I love it. I mean, I wouldn't mind a hamburger and some chicken nuggets too. So I want to go back to death row now where your execution date was coming up. You knew that the means to the end was gassing. Talk to me about what happens when you're led into, is it a gas chamber? Can you talk me through it? Well, first of all, they put you in a cell next to the gas chamber. And then you can have a priest if you were good or a pastor or something like that if you decided to do that. Mm -hmm. And you spend your last 24 hours there. Then when it's time, they come and get you. And some people just go peacefully. Uh, I was not going to do that. 
I turned down that option. I mean, I was going to make a bang on the way out somehow. I mean, I can't fight six guards. There's no way. These guys are brutes. But they're going to know I was there. And then they put you into a chair. And they strap you in. They strap you into this chair with leather on your feet, your legs, and your hands and your arms. And your head. And then uh, they wait for the governor to possibly call and stop the execution, which very rarely happens. Uh, and then what happens, they drop pellets into acid underneath the chair you're sitting on. It's in a bowl, and it starts the gas coming up. And you gasp and you fight. You fight your breath and everything until you finally die. Is it kind of like when they used to gas prisoners of war, like that kind of thing? It's a type of gas that they used to use in the concentration camps in Germany. That's what I was thinking. So yes, that's yeah, what they did. That's, so I think that it's actually um, what I've read is that it's almost like needles in your chest and your throat. Like it's, you know, it's not just kind of an overwhelming fog that kind of suffocates. It's like excruciatingly painful. You're right. It is extremely painful what happens to you then. And you're in shock and you're trying to get your breath and you're panicking and everything. I mean, I read a bit about it. I wouldn't. Oh, God. I'd rather be shot. Shoot me. Yeah, absolutely. And do you know, I mean, you probably don't, but how long that process is from like, like how long you suffer? Is that a couple of minutes? It depends on the person. If they're smart, they suck the gas in real quick. You can't, <laughs> you suck it in real quick because you want it to go quick. Mm. If you want to keep fighting and keep fighting, it's going to take longer. You can hold your breath. I mean, you, people hold your breath for up to four minutes. In fact, I practice it, by the way. I practice it until I got it to four minutes. I could hold my breath. Yeah. So you got another four minutes of life. Yeah. Uh-huh. And just to piss them off, too. <laughs> you, know? you sure are a fighter, aren't you? It's amazing the will, the strong will of someone that knows that they haven't done anything. Well, I've never wanted to be a weak person. When you got your execution date, did you know of anyone that was going before you? No. Okay. No, since they just reinstated again, I was going to be first. <laughs> In fact, I was nine days before my execution when the cop finally confessed to the murder. Nine days. You were so close to death. Yep. As soon as they reinstated the death penalty in the United States, right away they scheduled my execution. What's your state of mind like when you know that the end is coming? When I was young, I was religious. In fact, I worked in the church helping the priest at the altar and stuff like that. I was what was called an altar boy. So I knew about God, was very close with him when I was younger. Mm. Then I strayed straight for so many years. Mm. And, you know, then when I got in that jail cell, I was mad. I mean, in the death row, I was mad. And I was mad at God, too, because I figure he above anybody knows we're innocent. Yeah. That we didn't do this. He knows this. How can he do this? I've never done anything bad enough in my life to rape this. Come on, you know? And I was mad at him. I told, and I told, talked to him. I said, you know what? I will never ever talk to you again on these side of these bars. Yeah. Now, when I started getting close to my execution date, I was feeling kind of sorry that I took that oath. Yeah. Thinking, wow, you know? But I kept strong. I didn't give in. I did not talk to him. So you know what he did? The murderer, the cop, says he was walking down the street, and all of a sudden he says Jesus came into his heart, and he walked into the nearest church and confessed to the pastor there. Was this similar timing? Yes. I was nine days from execution when he did that. Was this cop aware that your execution date was coming? Yes, he was. So he was filled with guilt and he was filled with God and he said, I need to confess. And then what happens, what happens that day? What happens that day that they go, the copper did it, you guys are free, the evidence and everything was dodgy. Who tells you that and what happens? How do you feel? Let me go with what happened. Because of that, we wanted a new trial. And then we called in witnesses and stuff like that. At our original trial, one of the witnesses against us 
was a medical examiner, state medical examiner. His name was Dr. James T. Weston. For two days, he put pictures up on a big video screen in the courtroom showing gory pictures of the body. It was sodomized. It was cut. It was shot and all that. Who was the body? The body was a college student. His name was William Velton. Anyway, the doctor testified all that and showed all these pictures. When we went to our retrial, he admitted that he never, ever saw the body. He said the prosecutor paid him $50,000. This was in 74, $50,000 for his testimony. Mm. And he said he lied. He never saw the body. Now, the guy who did find it, the forensic pathologist who did the autopsy, he said none of that sexual stuff happened to the body. None of that happened. The prosecutor made that part up, which made it an aggravated murder, which made it subject for death row. So they manipulated the actual findings to make you guys go to death row. And the crime scene and what happened and everything. They they just completely manufactured and fabricated everything. They got a witness that said she saw us do it. We're in a courtroom. She knows my name. She knows our club names, our nicknames. She knows who our girlfriends are, and she knows all this stuff, and claims that she knows us and saw us do this murder. Later on, she confessed and said the cops promised to get her pimp out of prison if she testified like that. And then she also said that she never saw us, she never met us in her life. So what happens to all of these liars? Well, this is very, very rare that it happens in a case like this. But three of the cops got fired. And that's only because the sheriff wouldn't take the credit, you know. And the assistant prosecutor lost his license to practice law. That's it. But they didn't go to jail. They just lost their jobs. That's it. But five men were going to die. On top of that, the prosecutor refused to talk to the guy who admitted to it. When they finally did and they put him in prison, he got seven and a half years. He got out and he killed somebody else. (gasps) Then they gave him six years. Then he went to Albuquerque and he raped a woman and they gave him five years. And then he got out again and somehow that they did doing federal time for something. I don't know what it was. He wrote me a few times, wanted to talk to me. I don't want nothing to do with this asshole. He's a murderer. I'm not going to have coffee with him. What does he want to talk to you about? I don't know. And I don't care. I don't care. (laughs) He's not on my Christmas card list. This is an absolute movie. So when you hear the news that you have justice, you're sitting in your cell. Tell me what happens to you. We go to court, which we've been about three times already for motions, and they turn us down every time. Mm -hmm. Because we wanted to bring in a witness who was a cop in Los Angeles, 600 miles away from the murder scene, who has a ticket that he gave one of our guys at the time they say the murder was happening 600 miles away. Now, being indigent, you have to ask the judge for money for your case. Mm -hmm. We needed $625 to bring this cop in because we had to pay for his hotel and his transportation. So the judge took two days to decide on it, and he finally gave his decision. He says he denied it. He says he sees no way or shape or form that would influence our trial whatsoever. And he turned us down. So here we are going to court again on the retrial. And we're not expecting anything. We're hoping, but we're not expecting. We've been through this too many times. You know, when you got that much power over you, doing everything in the world to you, and I'm talking about the prison beatings, all the stuff and all that. Yes, a lot of stuff they the did abuse. to us. So we go to court, and then we hear this. these people start testifying and about who did what and everything like that. And the judge, right from the courtroom, says, this case is dismissed. You guys are free. Wow. The uh, prison guard who drove us there in a bus comes up with me to handcuffs, says, I got to take you back to prison. I says, didn't you hear what that guy said? I said, don't put those on me. Are you arresting me? You don't have the power to arrest anybody. I said, I'll knock your teeth out if you touch me with those. The judge turned around and said, what's going on over there? And the prison guard says, I have to take them back to the prison and sign them out. Judge looks at us and said, you guys want to go? I said, no, we're not going. He says, I said these are free men. Let them go. All right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> It literally is that quick. Yeah, about as quick as we were arrested for the murder. Wow. Where are your family, friends, girlfriends during this time? 
Well, that's kind of a sad thing. My girlfriend at the time, I was talking about leaving the club life, go get a straight job and kind of get married and want to raise kids, have our own little house. I mean, we had planned this. When I got put on death row, the other prisoners told me, man, you're going to be here 10 years fighting this or it's going to take them 10 years to kill you, but you ain't getting out of here. Mm. So I started believing them. So I wrote her a letter. I said, dear Cindy, uh, I have to cut you loose. I have to go through this. There's no reason you have to go through this with me. Mm. You know, you don't have to suffer this. I would feel worse knowing you're suffering this too. Mm. I've taken you off my my visiting list and I've taken you off my my letter list. You cannot contact me whatsoever. I want you to go out, find a good man, start a life someplace and forget about me because I'm done. I'm sorry it has to be this way, but I would feel a whole lot worse if you had to ride this this problem with me. So I cut her loose. So then I basically didn't have anything. What about your mom and dad? Uh, my mom was uh, had cancer at the time. And my dad, my dad was always a brutal dad. Uh, when I needed money for, for lawyer and stuff like that, I wrote him from prison. I said, Dad, I have a motorcycle in your garage. In fact, that's one of the things we we're going to do in Detroit is pick up my motorcycle. Mm. I said, I need you to sell the motorcycle and send me the money. So he sold the motorcycle and drank it up, drank up the money, didn't send me a penny. Mm. You know, that was my dad. He was always brutal, brutal, very violent. Myself and my brother used to have to sleep at night in bed with fully clothed with all our winter coat, boots, and everything on because he's going to come home drunk and want to beat on somebody, and you got to be able to get up and run at any time. That was my dad, so there was no help there. That's awful. And then your mom... And your mom is battling cancer. So this was a very, not just being inside the prison, but things are very difficult for you all around. Yes. Yes. Uh, I really didn't write anybody. Sorry, I did write my mom back and forth. Yes. The day that you got out, what did you do and who did you see? They're kicking us. They kicked us out of, of the courtroom. We're standing on the steps of the courthouse. And we have no coats or anything. We're wearing uh, jumpsuits. Prison, Prison jumpsuits. Jump suits says, says D-Row on the back of it. There's no pockets because they sew those up so you can't put contraband in it. We've got no underwear because they tell us with underwear you can make rope and hang yourself before they get to kill you. And they don't like that. And we've got rubber shower flip-flops on. That's it. On the steps with no cash, no coats, no clothes, no undies. Right. That's it. Yep. No mobiles back then. So and I don't know I don't know why they gave us shower flip flops because we never had a shower or exercise the whole two years we were there. No bathing. What we'd have to do, we'd have to plug up your sink and then scoot under it, soak down, then you rub the soap all over you, then you'd have to rinse off the same way because they would not give us showers. It's the only way you could stay clean. You had to overflow the sink on your head. You had to bathe in the sink. Uh, no, under the sink. You sit on the floor under the sink. Oh, so you're saying the, the water runs over. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So anyway, we got these shower flip-flops on. I don't know what we're going to do. I wouldn't expect you to get kicked out that early out of the, out of the case and out of prison and everything. Mm. So... Uh, the lawyer's office was two blocks away. So we walked over there. Our feet were frozen with the, with the snow and everything, but we didn't care. We were out. You know, I, I don't think I even remember feeling any cold. I was just numb already. So we go over to the lawyer's office, and they got a bunch of other lawyers in there and a bunch of people. We don't know who the hell these people are, and they're all drinking champagne. And I'm over sitting in the corner alone, wondering, what am I going to do? I'm not going back to the club. I'm done with that life. I, mm. I just don't want that anymore. Mm. Lawyer comes over to me and says, uh, you don't drink? I said, yeah, I drink. I just don't like champagne. He says, what do you like? I said, beer. I'm a beer drinker. I love beer. He calls his secretary over and says, go get these guys some beer. She says, what kind? I says, uh, cold and yellow. I don't care. Beer. <laughs> and she says, 
why don't you come with me and pick it out? At that second, I realized I was free. I could actually go with this woman in her car to go buy beer. Yeah, and choose something, your choice. That is, must be the weirdest moment where you go, wow, this is all going to begin now. Yeah, but then it gets really good because we didn't come back for three days. <laughs> Why? Because you're partying? Just me and her. <laughs> oh! <laughs> <laughs> we never made it back with the beer. Oh, my gosh. So that is so one of the first things you did was have sex. Yes. I hope you showered first. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I haven't even seen a woman in a couple of years. And here she is working for the attorney's office, and she wasn't dating anybody at the time. And she always heard about us and think, wow, these guys are famous and all that stuff. It's kind of like, I guess she thought she was sleeping with a rock star. I don't know. But she kept me for three days. I loved it. <laughs> Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you are wrongfully accused of a murder and you're on death row and you've been beaten to a pulp constantly and abused, do you get any kind of payment or do you get looked after by the government in some way because you were wrongfully done? Compensation only happens in certain states, okay? New Mexico was not one of them, but I'm going to get into that in a minute. Mm-hmm. Most of the states that do have compensation, they give you so many hurdles and hoops to jump through that you'll never, ever get it. And a lot of people die before they they get it. And they know that. They know that. And they do that. So anyway, we were able to sue the pathologist who lied. He got 50000 We sued him for the 50000 And we got to 50000 mm-hmm. But when it got down to us, I got $2,200. What? Yeah, the lawyers ate most of it up. Bloody assholes. Yeah, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, and that took two years to get. <laughs> so what are you doing then? Like, if you're not compensated apart from that, was that the only payment? Yeah, it was it. I went back after that state. You know, I still had an attitude against them. I can forgive, but I, 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 I'm not going to forget what they did. And I'm going to see that they don't do this to other people. Yeah. I went back there and fought for months down there. I do a lot of lobbying with legislatures and stuff. I talk to them. I did. I write a lot. I did op-eds and stuff like that. And not me alone, but we ended the death penalty in New Mexico. There is no more. Congratulations. And then we ended also what's called qualified immunity. Qualified immunity is where a cop can, or anybody in the government can do anything they want to you, and you can't do a damn thing about it. They can beat you on the street. They can pull your car over. They can do anything they want, and you can't touch them. Right before this case came up, well, the case of qualified immunity that was coming to the legislature, just before I got there to work, a cop kicked somebody's door down. The guy stood in the middle of his living room with his hands up, and the cop gunned him down and killed him. No mm-hmm. weapon in his hand, no nothing. The cop just opened fire and shot him. Wow. And it went to court. They tried to sue for it. And the judge ruled he has immunity, and you can't touch the cop. But it's it feels like for a long time there's been a lot of police brutality, and especially racially driven. And that's all underneath that law? Yeah. That no matter what, you're protected? Yes. So... I went back there fighting for this, trying to end this qualified immunity. And I testified in front of uh, Senate committees, judicial committees, House committees, full legislature, everything on this issue. And it finally came to the last day. uh, Chief of police from one of the states, uh, one of the cities got up there. And he says that if we end qualified immunity, that means people are going to start suing us suing the government for what what happens to them. 
mm-hmm. and it's going to cost millions and millions and millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. And I said, sir, you had a billion surplus last year in the state. You also have a, a billion surplus this year in the state. Now, nobody's going to get a whole lot of money. I think the cap is going to be $2 million or something. But you're saying that you're, you know that all these lawsuits are going to happen. That means you say that you know that you got that many bad cops. If you've got that many bad cops on your force, what are they doing there? If you've got, why are all these bad cops there that you're worried about? I said, maybe you're part of the problem. Maybe you should get recalled from your job because it sounds to me like you're the problem. You're allowing bad cops to do this, and you're in here now trying to protect the bad cops. Mm-hmm. I got an applause from the legislature, and they passed our law. No longer do they have qualified immunity. They can be sued now for anything they do to you. That means prosecutors. That means the garbage man. That means the cops, mainly aimed at the cops. Because the cops, they beat up a lot of people. You're now fighting the good fight, right? You've come 360. Before all of this, how do you even stabilize yourself with a home, with shoes, with an income? What's the bridge between release and some kind of like stability? Not only I, but almost anybody who gets off a death row. Like there's 187 of us right now in the United States who have been on death row, ready to die and found out we were innocent. Wow. And almost all of us, when you get out, you can't get a job because your name is in the paper all the time. I come from a small suburb north of Detroit. Everybody knew who I was. I was eating out of dumpsters. I would go past a restaurant sometimes. I smell the the food coming from the restaurant. I look in the window, and there's a couple people there eating a steak. And I look at the windows at them. I'm thinking, you know, if it wasn't for what they did to me, I would be sitting there with that pretty girl eating a steak. I would be drinking that glass of wine. Instead, you know, I I start crying a little bit and I'd kind of walk away because there's nothing I can do about it. I was sleeping in abandoned cars. So you're homeless. Yes, completely. With with no income. Even homeless get some income. I ain't nothing. So this is kind of wild, right? Because you've been wrongfully accused. You've been on death row. You're out, but you're kind of like thrown out. And... There's no plan, you know, there's no one saying, okay, so you have to go to this safe house and then this is your coupons and then you can eat here or there's none of that. So you, you really are now fending for yourself. So how do you go from being homeless and eating out of bins into finding safety? I wanted to see my mother and my dad wouldn't let me. And I got mad and I went over and I kicked his front door down. I went in and I talked to my mom and I held her hand. Matter of fact, I was with her when she died. But she reached in her purse and she pulled out $200 that she had. All the money she had, she gave it to me and hid it from my dad so he wouldn't see it. So that gave me a little start right there. So uh, uh, what I did was up north here when we have... Rain, snow, ice that freezes. We use rock salt. Rock salt to melt the ice and the snow. Yeah. So what I did, I got a a wagon, a little red wagon. And there was a supplier. I could go get these bags, plastic bags. He'd let me fill them up with rock salt. And I'd tie the top. He'd weigh them. And he'd charge me about a quarter a bag for them. I'd put them in my wagon. I'd go up and down the street. And I'd sell them for a dollar. Mm knocking on doors, and I'd charge another dollar if they wanted me to spread it out on their sidewalk and driveway for them. Mm. Started making some money doing that. Next thing you know, I got a pretty good truck. Make a long story short there, in one year, I had 81 employees. From when you got the truck? Yes. So you're also an entrepreneur. Now, yeah. Now I got a warehouse. Now I got these big semi-trucks coming in with all the salt. I got all these employees working and stuff. And the reason I would do that is I worked every waking minute. I didn't go out to eat. I had people bring me food, workers. I'd send them out for something, uh, beer, stuff like that. I wanted to stay away from the press because the press keeps wanting to talk to me all the time, and they're making it harder and harder for me to survive. So I stayed at work. I worked all the time, all waking hours. I'd sleep on the couch in the office sometimes, even though by then I had a place to live. 
but I just worked because I didn't want to talk to you. We didn't want to go out. I just put my nose to the grindstone and that's what I did and turned out to be successful. That is incredible. What's been the impact of that situation on your life? I mean, there's the obvious ones, but mentally, emotionally, physically, what's that been like? I don't want to say I don't have anger, but I channel it. Mm -hmm. I channel that anger. Uh, I like to write. I've been published in uh, seven countries, three languages. There's a current current book uh, being studied, a textbook being studied in law schools in the United States right now. I wrote part of that book. And I do that. I write. That's how I fight these systems. That's how I fight the corrupt and the, the dirty cops and the dirty prosecutors. You know, well, a lot of people don't understand. Like I said, there was 187 of us that have been freed from death row because we're innocent. 85% of those cases involved prosecutorial misconduct. Holy moly. 85%. There are a whole lot of cases. There's several right now all over the United States mm. where prisoners saying they want the DNA test, test the DNA, test the DNA. They'll even pay for it themselves. Prosecutors will spend years and hundreds of thousands of dollars fighting to make sure they do not get that DNA test. So what's up with that? I mean, is that corrupt or what? How can judges allow this to happen? Judges are supposed to be like the referee in a, in a soccer game. You don't expect the referee to run out onto the court and punch somebody. But in a court of law, it happens all the time. The judge will do that. It's amazing. You are actually, I, I'm not sure if it's yours or if you're working amongst it, but the witness to innocence is an organization for death row exonerees. Yes. What's your position within this? I've had several positions. Uh, I've worked for the organization. I've been on the board a couple times. I've been there basically since the inception of the organization. Mm -hmm. And is this you guiding them or just educating or fighting or all of it? Well, one of the things that I was doing too with two other guys is we we're holding a speaker's bureau. Just because a guy was on death row and he gets off doesn't make him an eloquent speaker. Mm -hmm. So we teach them things. We teach them. The main thing I teach them is confidence. Nobody in the world knows more about what happened to you than you. When you yeah. get up there and you talk, you don't have to be shy. You don't have to worry. You don't have to stutter up there or anything. You are the world's foremost authority on your case. Mm. And then I teach them stuff like the water glass pause Bring a bottle of water or a glass of water up there with you. If you can't think of what you're going to say next, take a drink of that water, you know, and it gives you time to think of what you're going to say next. It's just little tricks, you know. But we teach them how to do that stuff, and we get them out, and we pay them. You pay them to help them have a start? That too. But we pay them to go out and speak up out against the death penalty. Ah, uh, gotcha. Now, we do this too when somebody gets out. We'd like to give them, go and meet them with a check. Sometimes it's got to be cash because these people don't have an account. They can't of cash course. a check. Of course. But we want to make sure they have food and shelter. And then we try to help them get a job. But we kind of carry them a little bit because we know what it's like. We've been in those shoes. Yeah, man. And are some of them, like, had they been in there for, like, decades? We got three of them that were in for 41 years. <gasps> and here's the problem. These guys get out been in there 40 years in prison for something they didn't do. They, they don't know what a laptop is. They don't know what a cell phone is. They might have heard about it, but they don't know how to work any of that stuff. They got to go out and compare and compete mm -hmm. with flipping hamburgers at McDonald's when and got to compete against teenagers to get that job. And they're old men now. They're old men when they, they were in when they were 20. Now they're 60. Now they're trying to find a job with no skills whatsoever. Because on death row, you don't get skills. They don't teach you anything. They're going to kill you. And for all of these that are exonerated, there is this huge amount of people that are killed wrongfully. Yes. Do you know those numbers? Roughly 9 to 10%. That's huge. Yeah, are, are, are executed innocently. And a lot of it is because of these dirty prosecutors. That's huge. And... America has many states, but how many have the death penalty? Right now, 
22 do not have the death penalty, but there's a bunch of states that have it that don't use them. Uh-huh. All right. There's moratoriums like Illinois and stuff. They have a moratorium on it, holding off on it. Uh, we've won the last 10 years, uh, nine states in 12 years, nine states we've won and still working on more. And a lot of them, they just don't use it. They got people that have been sitting on death row for, oh, 20, 20 years or so, but they don't use the death penalty. Why do they send someone for the death penalty if they don't want kill them? I don't understand what the point is. Because the prosecutor wants a feather in his hat. The prosecutor wants to say, hey, I'm a prosecutor. Prosecutor's elected position. There's no recourse against them. You can't do anything to them. Only recall him. And that takes a lot to do. But what it is, that's just a step to attorney general or to governor. And to do this, he's going to prove that he's tough on crime. And to do that, he's going to kill a whole lot of innocent Mm. people. He doesn't care. It's all for him. How are these people dying? Is it still by gas? Is it lethal injection? What are the methods? Lethal injection now. All of it? No, some states have fought the lethal uh, injection. Well, they're having a problem with it because of the law. They're buying uh, illegal drugs from other states and stuff like that for lethal injections and stuff. So the judges have stopped them. So now they're offering this firing squad. <gasps> yeah. Mm-hmm. And a bunch of guys are taking that. It's a quick, simple death. If I had my choice, that's what I would take. Shoot me. What do you do? Do you do you stand in a room and how many people, firing squad, how many is that? They just have six six or eight police officers or whoever does this, just shoot them while they're standing up. They put, a lot of times they put a hood over their head. Oh, wow, 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 wait. That is something. And they just kill them. They all shoot at the same time? Yes, one of them is firing a blank. Oh, so they don't know. Even six guys shooting. They do not know which one has the blank. What, that's supposed to give them a way to sleep at night? Yes. Also, you're going to find somehow out of six shots, six shooters, for some reason, they're only 25 feet away and with rifles. But for some reason, sometimes only three bullets hit the prisoner. That means two of the other guys in there didn't want to kill somebody. Wow. Tell me something. What about the worst of the worst of the worst people, you know, people that rape and torture children and do horrific things to people, should the death penalty exist for them? No, why let them off of what they did? They should suffer for what they did. They should go to prison for life for many, 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 many years. Letting them off that easy is ridiculous. One of the papers asked me one time, you know, about the death penalty. Well, what would be worse than death? I told him life. Life in prison would be a whole lot worse than death because you're spending your life in there. Now, if you, one of these uh, people who hurt a child or women or something like that, the cons will take care of it. The inmates will take care of that person. Yeah. Yeah. They will rape him. They will beat him. He won't have a peaceful day for the rest of his life in there. Yeah. If somebody I get did you. that to my daughter, my, my kid, that's what I would want. Do you feel like you have been able to have a fulfilled life post death row? Yes. Although death row was horrendous for me, it put me on a path, put me on a path to help other people. Now we're trying to get compensation in these other states and stuff. Now I'm head of that committee, by the way, to do that through witnesses and innocence. I'll never see a dime. None of us will but we're trying to help people in the future who this can happen to. I think what you're doing is incredible. It is so important. Our final question today is one that everyone gets on the deep. Who are you when no one's watching? When no one's watching, I'm a family man. I love my grandkids and I love my kids. Everything I do outside of the stuff we talked about is for my family. I love my kids. I live alone now. My wife died in October. I'm my 37-year-old daughter died two months ago of fentanyl overdose. Oh, I'm sorry. Yep, yeah, that was a shocker. So I live alone now with my little doggie, you know. 
and I'm getting by. I'm moving on. I'm still doing things. I picked up picked up myself, and uh, I'm going. I'm doing it. You're incredible. Fentanyl drug use yes. is something that we should really discuss on this show. We really should. Nobody knew she was doing it. I had no idea she was doing it. And I think it was accidental anyway. I think she got she did some other kind of drug or something and didn't know that was in there because she didn't do that. She did Adderall. That's what was her thing to do. So, hey, you know, these are crosses we must bear. I figure a lot of the stuff that bad happens to me is probably payback for stuff I did when I was in the motorcycle gang. Oh, don't think of it like that. No. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna dwell on it and become a, a you know whiny little baby about it. Not gonna be a blithering idiot. I accept that and I move on. It's like like you're in a war, you get wounded. So what? You get up and you keep fighting. You're wonderful, Ron. You've really educated us today. You ha it's been insightful. It's been so much like a movie, incredibly fascinating. Thank you for all of the tireless work that you do. We really appreciate you being on The Deep today. Okay, well, thank you very much for having me. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of The Deep. If it's left you with any burning questions for me or our guests, please hit us up by direct message on Instagram at What's The Deep. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, everybody. It is Zoe here. Change is coming to the deep. I want to welcome you to Arise. It's uplifting. It's quirky. It's curious. It's all about the mindset and self-discovery to be more helpful and of service. During 16 of the Deep, you will hear some of these episodes, and I'd love to hear what you think of them over on our Instagram at What's the Deep.